In the last episode of Minted, I scratched the surface of NFT marketplaces. OpenSea, Magic Eden, and now Enigma.art are all online marketplaces where anyone can buy and sell NFTs. Anyone can create NFTs too. But broadly speaking, I've seen three main categories of NFT. I'm going to focus on just one category of NFT today as we explore communities. The first category I've noticed are the NFTs made by individual artists who release one-off images or limited editions of a small series. Every genre of art and in every style you can think of are already available on NFT marketplaces, from illustrations, animation, photography, digital painting, and even AI-generated images. The second category of NFTs I've seen are the ones by big-name brands who are just starting to explore the space. Fashion brands like Nike and now luxury brands like Louis Vuitton, Prada, even Cartier are all creating NFT projects. But for the last couple of months, it's actually been the third category of NFT that's interested me the most, and that's NFT collectibles. Bored Ape Yacht Club, CryptoPunks, Doodles, Pudgy Penguins, these are all collections. Collections are where I'm going to focus today's episode. Each collection is made up of thousands of images, usually 10,000 or less. The style of the image is typically a portrait that makes for a good profile picture on your social media account. It takes a whole team to create and manage a project like this. The team normally includes a project manager, artists, Web3 developers, community managers, and probably a web designer. These teams aren't creating 10,000 images by hand. Instead, the artists create variations of each element that appears on the character in the collection. Facial features like eyes, glasses, mouths, teeth, but also hats, hair, jewellery, anything you can think of. These elements are then pulled together using a simple algorithm that ensures some elements, and therefore some characters in the collection, are statistically more rare than others. Prominent features, like gold teeth, for example, that are also verifiable as being rare, can have a huge effect on price. Some marketplaces and other tools are available that provide data on those rarity rankings. In this week's episode, I'm exploring NFT communities, specifically the communities around the NFT collections I've just talked about. So when I talk about NFT projects in this episode, I'm referring to the collections like Bored apes, crypto punks, and so on. Not the big brands or individual artists. Since anyone can trade an NFT, and with so many new projects appearing every week, what makes some NFTs more successful than others? Given what I've seen in the last couple of months, I'd say there are two components to every NFT project. The team creating it is the first component, but the second, more important component is community. The communities that form around NFT projects are made up of people who are new to the space, just because the whole NFT space is still pretty new. Then there's the people who got into NFTs after already being active in cryptocurrency and decentralized finance for a while, also known as DeFi getting to the point where I could even begin to understand how these communities and markets overlap. That all began when I talked to two people in particular, and they're the people we're going to hear from today. The first person is Charlie Ward. So I'm the founder of a uh, remote community 
called Weekend Club. We're basically a community that helps solo founders and bootstrappers get to run and profitable. Um, we do that by helping connect you with other founders, um, stay more productive through co-working. And the goal is just to make the journey much less lonely and more fun and more productive and successful. We've got about under 80 members now. We do in real life and remote co-working. Um, education as well. We have in-house mentors um, and also a bunch of discounts. The second person you'll hear from today is Spiros Galanis. I'm a professor of economics at the Departments of Economics and Finance at uh, the Durham University Business School. My research is on decision theory and game theory, so I'm an economist. Uh, I'm doing a bit of behavioral economics, a bit of finance, and also some of my research is at the intersection of economics and computer science. Last year, Spiros organised panel discussions and short courses on the economics of blockchain and cryptocurrencies and is also an advisor to RO Capital, regularly writing reports such as an introduction to distributed ledger technology and blog posts on stable coins, digital securities and on-chain governance. Being able to talk to an economist who understands a lot more than I do about this stuff has really helped me and I hope it's going to help you as well. There is nothing more important than community. Community is universal and it's ubiquitous to both our online and offline lives. Communities are about people, so it made sense to me to talk to an economist since economists seek to explain what drives human behaviour in a variety of contexts, like when there's uncertainty, risk or some other factors that affect decision-making. There's plenty of uncertainty and risk in NFTs. I suspect a lot of people see more scams and risks than they see a strong sense of community when it comes to NFTs. Communities don't make the news as much as big scams do, but I feel strongly that we need to highlight great NFT communities and understand how they work together, how they create value for a project. And I also want to understand how the economic mechanisms of some of these NFT projects, which people call tokenomics, how these mechanisms motivate the community. So let's start with the question, what is community? I think it's important to stay grounded to a very intuitive concept. One that answers the question, what is community? By associating community with a feeling we've all had. Loneliness. For many of us, that feeling has been more present during the coronavirus pandemic. The author Johan Hari, in his book Lost Connections, frames loneliness as the total absence of community. So, I thought we should try and understand the power of community by thinking about what it means to be without one. What it means to be lonely. To end loneliness, Hari writes, you need other people, plus something else. You also need to feel you're sharing something with the other person or the group. Something that's meaningful to both of you. You have to be in it together, and it can be anything you both think has meaning and value. 
You might have noticed that in Charlie's introduction, without any prompting, actually mentioned loneliness as a reason for starting the community in the first place. The goal was just to make the journey much less lonely and more fun and more productive and successful, ultimately. Let me repeat this concept again in the context of NFTs, just to keep everything grounded. The feeling of loneliness is the total absence of community. To say there is an NFT community means we should find groups of people who feel they're in it together. We should find companionship, collaboration. And going by Hari's definition, we should find that NFT communities are full of people who feel they're sharing something that has meaning and value. So I feel that the technology around crypto assets and blockchain has reached a critical point where NFTs can have meaning and value for people. There's a trend I've already seen that's come about from the NFT and DeFi communities coming together more. One that could really grow in future, I think. It's actually already possible to use some NFTs as collateral for a loan on some DeFi platforms. In other words, someone will lend you money if they can hold on to your NFT. And if you're unable to pay back your decentralised loan, then your NFT gets liquidated in order to pay back the lenders. What I think is more interesting, because it aligns the incentives of multiple communities, is the potential for what's being called NFT farming. This is when a group of people who invested in the same NFT collection, usually there's several thousand NFTs in a collection, they all stake their NFT on a DeFi platform. Staking it means that those NFTs can't be traded anymore on marketplaces. They're locked into the DeFi platform, but you still own them. This increases the scarcity of the NFT, which can in turn increase its value. But staking an NFT in this way also means that the owners of the NFT can create value from something that was just going to sit in their wallet. The DeFi platform unlocks the value of the NFT temporarily, effectively loaning the value of the NFT to people who want to borrow money. So for an investor who's staking their NFT on a DeFi platform, something I did this week, it's essentially the same as putting in cryptocurrency, except you don't sell your NFT in order to put the money in. So when a DeFi platform earns money from lending to borrowers, they pass that profit on to the lenders, usually in the form of some proprietary token, which you can eventually exchange out for US dollars or some other currency. From what I understand, this whole mechanism is not dissimilar to how the play-to-earn concept works in a number of NFT-based game projects. Either way, for people less interested in games who could be earning something rather than just having NFTs sit in their wallet, I think if this catches on, this could be really big for NFT collectors, but will also prove to be the way most people who start with NFTs get into decentralised finance. OK, let's bring in Charlie. I want you to listen out for when his curiosity about NFTs turned into a sense of community. In other words, when he started to connect with people about the meaning and value of NFTs. My, my world's like community building. I also do UX research as a freelancer. I'm just very interested in um, the world of community and bootstrapping, some of which is Web3, but also Web3 stuff. 
I came across an NFT at the beginning of 2021. I didn't really think much of them, to be honest. Um, but it's where I saw the crossover of like online identity. When I started seeing people set their profile pictures as their NFTs, like that wasn't mm. something I'd ever really seen or thought about before. I just thought that was very interesting um, for some reason. And I found a few projects that I thought were super cool. So I just thought I'd get involved and start buying them. And once you buy them, that leads you naturally into Discord communities and multiple other crypto communities. You have to really get into these commun Discord communities to really like get a feel for the space and discover more stuff. Being in the right communities, you just naturally start discovering more and more projects. Then you find other people to follow on Twitter, and that's how you get more and more into it. The basic principles for making any community successful, at a high level, it's pretty much the same. There are two reasons communities are successful. The first is people usually join a community to like, there's some kind of goal they have. The goal of some communities is more specific than others. So at Weekend Club, ultimately, we want to help people, you know, get to run and profitable. And there's a few ways we do that. The second thing is like the vibe of the community. You enjoy being with these people. Um, you enjoy talking to them. You enjoy reading what people write and meeting them. And if you can nail those two things, then, you know, you're in a good place. That's true of communities, whether it's your local Weight Watchers or if it's an NFT one. I think tone of voice and like writing style is actually quite an underrated thing in the community space. I actually used to work in creative agencies. I recognize this a bit more, I think, than some people. So Board Ape Yacht Club, one of those underrated things is their copywriting and their tone of voice was really good. It seems like a small thing, but the communication of some projects, it's just like an intern's doing it. It's very hard to measure the impact of this, but I think it has a greater impact than people realize. There's a recent one called Creeps um, with a Z at the end. The whole thing is about these lizards who are invading the earth. It's a kind of conspiracy theory themed NFT project. The reasons they've done so well, first of all, the, the artwork for the profile pictures is cool. So they're very on top of the community building and they're making people feel respected. It's not enough to just be a nice person and talk to people a lot. You have to deliver as well. They're very good at community building and community building is a lot of things, but like, um, part of that is like. Just like the general vibe, their messaging, like when they do a tweet, it's quite funny. They run regular, ask me anything. All their communications are just really on brand and on right. point and funny. It's just more engaging. They do have community leaders um, who, you know, they talk like normal people, but from the, the Creeps Twitter account, for example, there's an overlord who oversees all of the Creeps. There's a message who comes from the overlord in Discord, and it's just hilarious. Like, every time it comes through, it actually is like a real overlord exists, but it, obviously it doesn't. But it's just funny, and people just like the vibe of it. So they've got like a really solid team. It's not just an NFT project where you buy an NFT. It's also like a play to earn. So you need to own an NFT to get involved in a game, and you stake your NFT so you can earn this token that they've created, which you can then in turn spend on upgrades to... for. In, for various items and it's it's not a complicated game i wouldn't say it's not like playing halo or something it's obviously much more simplistic the general concept of the game is just very well thought out creeps just packaged all this stuff together really nicely to get the community excited and they're actually delivering when you deliver what you say you're going to do they keep people are happy let's just recap this a little bit so there's a broad nft community on twitter there are also NFT communities on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and the messaging app Telegram. It's common when an NFT project starts 
that they invite people from those wider community platforms to join a Discord server. If you're not familiar, a Discord server is like Slack or other chat apps for larger groups or companies. It was actually originally designed for gamers. There's lots of different channels in a Discord server, and each one will be named a specific topic, and that helps keep the conversations focused. So along with the community members who are in the Discord server, there's also moderators, and those people are either in the core team of that NFT project, or they're trusted members of the community that they've built around them. The job of a moderator is to remove or ban anyone who breaks the community rules. Those rules are typically common sense to most people. Be nice, don't spam, don't be racist, rude or aggressive to people, that kind of thing. These NFT discords typically have a couple of read-only channels for things like announcements and for the team to be able to share the correct URLs relating to the project. I saw someone in a Discord server this week who'd lost $400 from a fake link that he was sent by someone pretending to be one of the core team. It's those kind of scams that are causing opinions to be divided around NFTs. I asked Charlie why he felt some people were so sceptical and what his own motivations are for investing. Is he in it for the art or for the money or for both? Somewhere like Weekend Club, we have a lot of people who are sceptical of the space in the community. Not many people seem to be in the middle. They're all, all ve very pro or very anti. But there's a lot of developers who are very sceptical of it. People who are outside the space just throw out numbers like, oh, 80% of NFT activity is wash trading. I've seen that yeah. before, which is based on nothing, essentially. There's no evidence for that. Um, I'm not saying there is no like money laundering. I'm sure there is a certain level, but I think people underestimate how much people actually enjoy being in these communities and buying and selling them. I've seen it with my own eyes. I'm also one of these people and it's not just me and a load of money launderers. Like I kind of know <laughs> other people doing it, you know? <laughs> I also own physical art, right? You know, I don't really pay much thought to, could I sell this for more one day? If I really like it, I'll collect it. Yeah. In NFTs, I, I admit it is slightly different. I, w I want to like it and I also want to make money from it. And I think that's okay. I think that yeah. most people are in that position as well. Generally speaking, I, I have to like the artwork. So if it mm. goes to nothing, I kind of, you know, enjoy it or <laughs> would yeah. make it like my profile picture for a bit or something. With this Creeps one recently, I just came across it, like the artwork liked the idea behind the sort of place to earn seemed unique someone i trusted who had some kind of knowledge of the, the team was like you know they're really serious and they're like very good and it just seemed like a fun thing to get involved with and that was it really i didn't that that's all it kind of takes i bought my first nft i think in maybe may 21 so if i sold everything now i would be in profit but it's not like a massive profit i've got some things i, I think they could five or ten x one day I'm cautious not to spend more than I can afford to lose. Obviously, you sleep at night, so you're, yeah. that's better, but you're not forced to make rash decisions and no. you're willing to like hold things long term. Because that's where the, generally speaking, your two ways to earn money, assuming you're a decent decision maker, is to like, if you actively trade, people do very well off that. But like, you know, you've got to have the time to do it and the ability and i don't have like tons of time to do that i've sold a few things here and there so i just try and like i'm a bit more of a sharpshooter and well i like to think that anyway um maybe i'm not yeah i just take my time with it and just buy stuff it's not like buying coins where the only reason you would do that most of the time is to make more money yeah. with nfc's it's actually fun the process of like 
you know, hearing about one, get researching the project, getting involved, staking it, like being in the community is actually quite fun. So that's another reason that it's quite popular. Charlie happened to mention a use for NFTs that I wasn't familiar with before. It relates to a whole new level of community. Another increasingly common category of NFT is just a membership NFT where it gets you access to like some kind of um, club or services. How this works is when you buy an NFT, it actually shows up in the same wallet where you keep your cryptocurrency. Many of these wallets have apps for your phone, but there's also plugins for web browsers so that you can get to your wallet from your laptop. Remember that a blockchain is where a list of transactions is written and it can't be changed. This means that the blockchain also provides an accurate reference of who owns what. And because website developers can now connect to the blockchain and pull information from there, you can now connect your wallet. You explicitly give the website permission to see the address and potentially the contents of your wallet. If you own a particular NFT, then the website can see that and then give you access to the services that Charlie was talking about. Think of it as being similar to when you give an app on your phone permission to access your photos. But instead of importing the photo or sending it to somebody, you're using the image like an ID card or, well, like a membership card. One that can be easily authenticated because it's on a blockchain. One example he gave me of exactly this is PoolSuite. They created Poolside FM previously, which just plays like kind of 80s music and it's got a really Web1 aesthetic. But they did that for years and they created a really good brand of it. Hundreds of thousands or millions of users who've been on that site, probably. They took all that brand equity and launched Pool Suite. They call it an internet leisure company. It's just quite funny. You should check it out. It's really cool. They've done a good job of taking strong brand equity and translating that into like a successful NFT project. They launched a um, NFT so you can you could mint it for like 0.2 ETH and this is your membership and there's only two and a half thousand. It's already like 5x higher to buy one of these now than when you could mint them. And it gives you access to certain real life um, experiences and merch drops and that kind of thing. They had very strong brand affinity already and they're executing well. And people have a lot of faith that this is going to be worth having in the future because it's just very cool and interesting. If there's one reason to have a look at this Pool Suite website, it's because of their commitment to a very authentic early web slash 90s visual style. The second you load their web page, it's like using an Apple Mac from 25 years ago. It's not recognisable as a modern web page. The colours, the wallpaper, the font choice, everything is really on brand. As soon as the site loads, music starts playing from a little media player that you can move around on a 90s-style desktop interface. There's a floating window in the centre of the screen with a kind of 16-bit image that you won't have seen for years, but it's really familiar, it's really fun, and it's really on point and on brand. There's plenty to explore on the website, but I definitely recommend checking out the Instagram icon sat on the right-hand side of the desktop. And if you've ever wondered what Instagram might have actually looked like in the 90s, this is probably the only place you can go online and find out. Definitely go and try it. The use of NFTs as a kind of membership card opens up a lot of conversations about the potential other utilities of NFTs. 
pretty much everything Charlie told me when we talked was news to me. As we talked more about the utilities of NFTs and the communities around them, he told me about two concepts that, although I'd heard of them, I hadn't really connected them to NFTs or to each other. The first concept was decentralised autonomous organisations, also known as DAOs. The second concept that came up was tokenomics. Again, I'd heard the term, but it wasn't clear how important it was or what tokenomics really meant. And people seem to be using it in different ways. Having a conversation with Charlie about DAOs and tokenomics got me more interested again. That's when I went deeper by talking to Spiros, the professor of economics I introduced you to earlier. In my understanding of what tokenomics is, is different from what the people, let's say, on the ground is, right? I'm not necessarily an expert in trying to, to understand exactly what do they mean. It's not terminology that economists are using now, let's say, right? No. So it's sort of how people uh, who actually use these things, they refer to how tokens are used. But I mean, from our point of view, it's very interesting, uh, you know, to study how tokens are used in these organizations and how, you know, what is the best way of designing this mechanism, right? But, you know, from what I understand, you have like an organization or a protocol or you know, what, they, what they call this now a DAO, like a decentralized autonomous organization. And this is going to usually issue some tokens. And the tokens, they behave as coins, essentially. The tokens can be used uh, to buy the service of this organization. So they, they would be called uh, ut uh, utility tokens. Or they can be used to vote on the organization, for example, like governance tokens. So the issue for this organization is how to use these tokens to incentivize participation in, the, in, the, in this organization, right? Because some of the people are going to be coming because they want to utilize, you know, to, to use the service. A lot of them are going to just buy the tokens because they want to speculate. One way of understanding the tokenomics is when this organization comes into place, they say, we're going to issue this token. We're going to distribute them, let's say, 20% to the community. It sort of describes how we're going to use this token to achieve our goals. And this is going to give particular incentives to different types of people. So for you as a speculator, you want to say, okay, is this going to be like a one-off in one week, it's going to go to zero? Or they have a longer term? Are they, you know, the big players, are they going to hold their tokens? Or are they going to just spend them? And so on. So this is sort of, but this is sort of a loose... Um, I think, from my understanding, it's sort of a loose uh, terminology, tokenomics. PoolSuite's website does say they're planning to release their own token, and this will be more like a cryptocurrency with a set of rules around how it's used. The PoolSuite NFT provides access to exclusive real-world services and merchandise. The fact that there's only a few thousand memberships also creates scarcity, and that can influence how desirable and therefore how valuable that NFT is to people. The PoolSuite membership NFT does get you early access to the proposed PoolSuite token. From this, we can really start to see what people mean when they talk about tokenomics. Right now, PoolSuite members aren't part of the organisation. They're using a service that the company provides. We can still say there's a community around PoolSuite, but it's a DAO, or Decentralised Autonomous Organisation, that really turns a community into a governing body. Here's Spiros again talking about DAOs, and in particular here, how a DAO could create value for its users. When you start creating a service, take for example Facebook. So they're trying to build a really nice uh, service and uh, product. 
And they have two different stakeholders, right? Then their investors and their users, right? So for example, Facebook would say, okay, give me your content, your information for free forever. And I'm going to give you a nice service. And then for the, for the investors, they say, okay, give me your money. I'm going to build a nice service and we're going to monetize it uh, at some point. So initially, sort of the investors and the users sort of on the same board, they want to build a nice Facebook, but at some point their incentives diverge, right? At some point the investors are going to say, now we want our money back, right? So how are we going to do that? And then Facebook has to sort of give, uh, you know, they have to prioritize what they're going to do, right? So for example, Facebook would say, okay, now the information that these people have given them, I'm going to sell it to advertisers, right? So this is how I'm going to make money. And this is not necessarily the way that the early contributors uh, of Facebook envisioned the service. And also, when you're an early user, you go to Facebook, there's nobody around, and you start putting your content. But for you, there's not really any payoff, right? If I'm a user, so I'm, I'm helping Facebook now to become a better service, I'm not going to be different from a guy who comes three years later from me. This changes in, in Web3 in the, in the following sense. The early users are also early investors. So if we do, let's say, Facebook in the Web3 era, the way that it's going to happen is that you're going to issue a token and then you're going to use the token to access a service. So then you put your content there, your information, let's say your pictures, uh, you know, you create this network effect, you, you invite your friends. But then because you have the tokens at the same time, if this service succeeds, then you're going to get a payoff on your tokens as well. So the, the tokens are going to appreciate in, in price. So you are an investor and a user at the same time. So the interesting thing with these decentralized organizations is that they merge in some, you know, up to a point, not completely, the users with the investors. So they become one. So this means that down the line, right, at, you know, a few years later, their incentives are going to be more aligned. So I think that's an interesting thing. And, you know, in principle, it could, it could lead to a better outcome. A DAO is a decentralized organization, but to work together as a community, to talk, to discuss, to share files, people are using Twitter and Discord. These are products made by centralized Web2 organizations. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. But then at this stage, what do I really know? Talking to Charlie, he told me that he's a member of a couple of DAOs. As a community manager himself, he was curious about how it works in practice. Charlie gave me his definition of what a DAO is, which fits with what Spiros told me, obviously. But I still found it helpful to hear about DAOs and tokenomics from two different people. So hopefully you'll find that helpful too. An original DAO is like where decisions are sort of executed via smart contracts um, based on the votes of the community. So I kind of try to use tokenized community a bit more now, actually, because I think that's a more accurate description than <laughs> what some things that call themselves DAOs. You start with your community, you decide oh, we're going to create a token, you create a contract, and then when you launch, you, um, you airdrop everyone the token, which actually costs you gas, obviously, so you need to figure out that. And then you explain, okay, this is what our vision is for our uh, community now. Here's how you can get involved. From now on, you have to buy a certain number of our token on somewhere like Uniswap or SushiSwap in order to, um, to join. Usually there's also still an application process, um, but obviously it depends on the community. 
in reality, a lot of DAOs are executed by a human who can decide whether to do it or not. If they don't do it and everyone voted for it, obviously they'll lose the trust of their community. It's not executed by a smart contract. They could pass away, obviously, and there's not a huge amount of recourse. I joined a few DAOs, like um, well, the one I probably am in the most is one called uh, Shiny Object Syndrome. I think the idea was originally just to share interesting projects they found online. I think a few months ago, they actually became a, a tokenized community, a DAO. So the early members no longer have to kind of pay a subscription and they got airdrops, a shiny token. Not only can you buy and sell this, you can actually use it. You have to have a certain amount to be a member and you can also use it for governance voting. So it's now like a kind of traditional DAO and there's lots of ways to get involved. Just seeing how a community that's sort of a non-DAO becomes a DAO, seeing that, just watching that process has been very interesting. And for a community to do this, as long as you have the knowledge and resource to do it, I mean, it's fairly straightforward, I guess. There's a playbook on how to do it, is what I mean. Um, I'm not saying it's easy to execute. Hopefully this has been a useful introduction to DAOs and tokenomics. When I interviewed Charlie, I also asked him about two more things that I want to share with you in the last part of the show. I asked Charlie, how would he build a team if he was part of an NFT collection project? And I also asked him if he was going to explore NFT memberships for his company Weekend Club, how would he go about doing it? I'm thinking about integrating NFTs into the Weekend Club experience more. But what I think could be interesting is if there's a way you could like earn them as different kind of awards for hitting certain milestones. Let's say my version of Rum and Profitable is, let's call it like 5,000 euros a month, right? So you can verify that easily by connecting your Stripe account to something through the API. What if when you got to yours, it would automatically generate you a special like award NFT, for example. Maybe that gives you a lifetime membership once you, once you hit that. I think that's an interesting way of kind of getting into that because um, so if you're going to offer a lifetime membership at all, I think it's actually better to do it with an NFT because it's better for brand building. So you're creating these visual artifacts which are out there in online, like on OpenSea and people might have it in some other places that other people can see. It's an extension of your brand in that way. Um, also, you know, assuming that the value of being a member increases over time and with the network effect, it becomes more valuable as more pre people join and as we add more services, then the value of the of this NFT is going to increase. In a way, they're not only buying a membership, but they're investing in you. I've bought a membership for a, a service recently via an NFT. And if I sold it now, not only have I used the service, but I could make a profit on, on that. It's good for the you know end user because they can make some kind of profit on it if they left one day, which most people do eventually. It's, it's just part of the game. But also as the creator of the NFT, you collect a royalty every time it's sold. So I think that would be the first way I would start doing that. It's pretty trivial now. Um, creating a token is what is like an order of magnitude more complicated and difficult and expensive. And it's a genie you can't put back, back in the bottle as well, really, once you do that. It's something I'd be much more cautious about doing. And I probably would join an incubator to do that rather than try and do it myself because there's a lot to it. There's one called Seed Club, which is basically the Y Combinator of tokenized communities. I think generally the standard is just growing in terms of like how to do these things and people are realizing you can actually make a lot of money doing this if you do it right. Even if you do it badly, <laughs> people have made a lot of money doing it. 
which I think is attracting better and better teams to the space. So I think it's only a, f a space that's four years old, right? And so there's a lot of room for experimentation. I think what we're seeing with Creeps, I think Creeps are setting a new standard in like the levels of the story, the brand, the community, the game. A lot's happening on that in the next couple of weeks. I think a lot of people are watching how that's going to go because I think it's potentially going to take off. In the next year, we're going to see a lot more of these projects launch. We're going to see lots more tokenized communities. And the more there are, the more variety you might see. So yeah, just seeing where some of these projects are going to go is interesting. A lot of these are built on on ETH, on Ethereum, which has been talking about, you know, solving the scaling problems for many years. People pay a lot of gas fees, which is probably a big barrier to regular people kind of getting involved in it going mainstream. They've, they've built up a huge amount of goodwill, but like, you know, it's all goodwill is a finite resource. If they don't solve it within a certain time frame, I don't know when that is, it's going to be interesting to see if it shifts to something like Solana. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. This is an independent podcast. It's written, produced, edited, and mixed by one person. A great way to support the show is simply to tell your friends, your followers, post about it on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, anywhere you want. Word of mouth really helps. The second way you could really help the show, if you're enjoying it, is just to give it a rating wherever you're getting your podcasts from, especially on Apple. Ratings really help to rank the show higher, and that helps more people to discover the show. Finally, there are two ways to directly support the show. You'll find links for these in the show notes. You can leave a tip in crypto or any other currency directly on the official Minted Twitter profile page, and that's twitter.com forward slash minted underscore podcast. You can also support the show over at buymeacoffee.com. Just go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash minted. Thanks again to Charlie Ward and Spiros Galanis for giving such great interviews for today's show. All the music in the show is licensed directly from Melody. That's M-E-L-O-D dot I-E. And here are their list of tracks and artists if anyone's interested. Beat of Memories by Singe Clark. Innocence by Nicholas Goulding. The New World by Mary Anchetta and Dan Keely. Lonesome Road by Juha Pekka Lina. Dust from Brian Johnson. And Top of the Hour by John Russo. If you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes or you want to be on the show, then you can reach out via the contact details I'll leave in the show notes. 